In his book, The Emergency Sasquatch Ordinance, the American lawyer, Kevin Underhill, presents some of the most bizarre and absurd pieces of legislation that human beings have ever enacted and, in some cases, enforced. One of these is a section from the Australian Goods and Services Tax Act 1999, a section which sets out the powers of Australian tax commissioners. The commissioner may, it says, treat a particular event that actually happened as not having happened. The commissioner may treat a particular event that did not actually happen as having happened and, if appropriate, treat the event as having happened at a particular time and having involved particular action by a particular entity. Or the tax commissioner may treat a particular event that actually happened as having happened at a time different from the time it actually happened or having involved particular action by a particular entity whether or not the event actually involved any action by that entity. This, Kevin Underhill assures us, is a piece of actual legislation that made it onto the statute books in Australia, although, of course, I'm not sure if it's still there. But despite being law, it is, of course, patently ridiculous. It's absurd. And what seems to be the reason for that absurdity is where I want to start today. Although this is a piece of law, it confers upon human beings powers that they cannot possibly possess. The ability to decree what actually did or didn't happen in a particular circumstance is a power that more commonly perhaps we would ascribe to gods rather than to human beings. Another of the examples that Underhill presents and which offers further food for thought is a piece of Chinese legislation, State Religious Affairs Bureau Order No. 5, 2007. This law specifies some measures in order to guarantee citizens' freedom of religious belief to respect Tibetan Buddhism's practice of inheriting living Buddha positions and to regulate the management of living Buddha reincarnation affairs. In short, what these regulations stipulate is that any Tibetan Buddhist teacher, such as the Dalai Lama, for example, who is contemplating reincarnating back into their role as a teacher. Well, they're going to need a permit from the Chinese government in order to do so. 
Setting aside the question of whether or in what sense reincarnation actually takes place, the absurdity of this piece of legislation again adheres in the fact that supposing reincarnation is a reality, whether or not someone is in possession of a permit from the Chinese government, that isn't going to stand in the way of reincarnation taking place. Of course, rather than guaranteeing, as it claims, citizens' freedom of religious belief, this law has probably been calculated instead to muddy the waters and seed confusion in order to obviate the transmission of Tibetan Buddhist beliefs and practices. When we think of law, when we think of justice, maybe that's in terms of imagining how what should happen, or what should be the case, can actually happen, and can actually be the case. If, instead, we decide that what happens shall be left up to nature, or the divine, if we prefer, then, sadly, in many cases, what we're likely to discover is that what should or what ought to happen isn't going to. The way things are, reality, doesn't always agree with the demands of human morality. Justice is the means by which we transform the world as it is into what it should be. It's the means by which we transform our world into the one that's right and fit for us as moral human beings. But if justice is what makes the world a more humane place, then perhaps it involves adhering to human limits and exercising always a certain degree of humility. What makes those laws that we considered earlier absurd is that they overstep those bounds by appearing to confer godlike powers or pretending to intervene in the workings of nature. Justice entails a certain respect for the limits of human experience and human nature. Ultimately, in an absolute sense, it's always going to be nature or God that determines what happens. We can't stand in the way of that. But what we can do is we can react to that. 
We can't dictate reality, but we can respond to it. We can decide how we're going to proceed from that point. Human justice is always reactive. It is, by its nature, always a response to what happens. Maybe we need to be on the lookout for anything that pretends to be justice, but doesn't respect these limits, and oversteps the mark by attempting to decree instead not human actions and human behaviours, but what a human being actually is, what people actually are, or what reality itself actually is. If it tries to do that, then it's gone too far, and maybe it ceases to be justice. The ancient Greeks had three goddesses that they associated with the idea of justice. Their names are Astraea, Dike, and Themis, and the different characteristics and narratives attributed to them also seem to emphasise how it's a certain relationship to the human that appears to characterise justice. Originally, the Greeks supposed, humans and gods lived together. They were part of the same world. This, the Greeks referred to as the Golden Age, and they imagined the development of humanity as a falling away from this idyllic state. The Roman poet Ovid describes the falling away of humanity, the decline of human nature, in terms of a descent from the Golden Age into the Age of Silver, and from there into Bronze, and finally down into Iron. Ovid tells us that it was Astraea, whose name means something like Star Maiden, the goddess of justice, innocence and purity, who is associated with the constellation Virgo. She, Ovid tells us, was the last of the gods to abandon humanity. She remained living amongst us right down until the age of iron, at which point... Human nature had become so abhorrent that she could finally stand it no longer, and she left the earth and ascended to heaven and the rest of the gods. It's very interesting to consider the symbolism of this myth of Astraea's departure, her unwilling departure from the earth. One thing suggested here, perhaps, is that justice offers an especially intimate link between the human and the divine. Even though, finally, she abandoned us, it's evident that human beings 
have a concept of justice and are able to exercise it to a certain degree at least, maybe the suggestion here is that when we do so, we're restoring an old but especially intimate link with the divine. The goddess Dike, however, perhaps presents a more formal face of justice. Rather than personal qualities of innocence and purity, DK is more closely associated with the attributes of fairness and the enforcement of tradition and socially agreed rules. There's a fair degree of overlap between DK and Astraea, and sometimes DK is referred to as DK Astraea. She's more the embodiment of justice in its outward forms. And when, in Western countries, we come across statues outside courthouses of Lady Justice, the woman blindfolded in robes with a sword and a pair of scales, then it's probably, in a large part, an image of decay that's being presented here. Themis, on the other hand, represents something quite distinct again from both Astraea and decay. Themis is the mother of DK, and whereas her daughter is more closely associated with the realm of human affairs, it is instead divine justice that Themis embodies. Her name, Themis, means literally that which is put in place. She embodies that realm of the moral order that we considered earlier, that realm of nature, the divine, the thing that ultimately happens, the thing that always prevails, and which we, as human beings, in our exercise of justice and law, can only react to. Although she has often been depicted with a sword and scales, in a way that superficially appears quite similar to her daughter. Actually, she represents a principle quite different, quite distinct, a notion of justice that belongs very much to the realm of the divine rather than to the human realm. In the tarot, it might be said that justice is among the least exciting of the major arcana. But maybe things do get interesting when we start to consider why this might be the case. Part of the reason is perhaps, as we've already mentioned, the iconography of justice is very pervasive very commonplace. Statues of Lady Justice are everywhere 
And it is basically Lady Justice who is depicted in the tarot. The robed woman, D.K. Estrella, who holds in her right hand aloft a sword, and in her left hand a pair of scales, a balance. The implication here perhaps is that the fairness, the balance, that she uses the scales in her left hand to ascertain, she enforces with the sword in her right hand. First she judges, she weighs things up, and then she takes action to enforce that judgement. Very often in her depiction in the tarot, she's shown as seated between two pillars. Sometimes the pillars are part of the throne she's seated upon. Those pillars are often interpreted as analogous to the left and right hand pillars on the Kabbalistic tree of life. On the left, the pillar of strength or severity. And on the right, the pillar of mercy or compassion. Whenever we judge the actions of others, these are two faculties that we must exercise proportionately, depending on the circumstances. If we're responding justly, then our reaction mustn't be too severe or harsh. But at the same time, it's not just either, if we are too soft. Exercising justice, acting justly, often we might prefer to leave it to someone else. Justice, traditionally, is considered a virtue, but it's common these days to hear the opposite view being expressed, that we shouldn't judge, or that it's important to be non-judgmental. Another reason may be that the justice card doesn't attract the attention that other cards in the tarot more easily seem to acquire is because of the effort and the responsibility that justice demands of us. Perhaps it was partly in response to this that Alistair Crowley renamed this card. He called it Adjustment and took it in a direction away from the traditional iconography of the Western legal system. Instead, he seemed to link it more with the operations of the Eastern idea of karma. And in his letters to Lady Frieda Harris, the artist he worked with in order to create his Toth deck, he makes some interesting comments that perhaps restore a dimension of excitement to this card. 
he writes to Lady Harris, you have got the idea of balance static, whereas it ought to be dynamic. Nature is not the grocer weighing out a pound of sugar. It is the compensation of complicated rhythms. I should like you to feel that every adjustment was a grand passion. Compensation should be a festival, not a clerk smugly pleased that his accounts are correct. It seems to me that this doctrine is very important as a commentary on the text Existence is pure joy. Maybe these comments can help us reflect on our own relationship to the notion of justice. Do we find judging the actions of others something awkward, difficult, embarrassing that we'd rather, much rather, outsource to others? Or is it, as Crowley might be suggesting, something in which we can take a genuine delight? When, in making our judgment of a particular set of circumstances, and by making our judgment enforcing, in a sense, what we have ascertained ought or should have happened, then isn't there actually something to delight in, this power of justice, of judgment, that as human beings we enjoy, our way of setting the world to rise. It might sound a little strange, a little macabre, to talk about the possibility of there being delight in exercising the capacity for judgment. But perhaps William Shakespeare's play, Titus Andronicus, offers us some useful food for thought in that respect. The main difficulty for anyone staging a performance of Titus Andronicus is likely to be the play's extreme violence. It's excruciatingly gory, filled with atrocities, precisely designed to evoke, I think, a world in which all justice and all sense of proper human behaviour has been discarded. In Act 4, Scene 3, Titus Andronicus, the play's protagonist, leads his remaining friends and family members onto a public street in Rome. Terras Astrea Reliquit, he announces. Astrea has left the earth. Justice has left the earth. What he orders his friends and family members to do is to write letters petitioning the gods and then to attach these to arrows and fire them up to heaven 
so that the gods can read the letters. Or, in the case of Pluto, dig down into the earth, break through into hell and deliver the letter to Pluto there. Since there's no justice in earth nor hell, says Titus, we will solicit heaven and move the gods to send down justice for to wreak our wrongs. Titus's family and friends find themselves very concerned for his mental health at this point. What, it might be said, is being given dramatic representation in this scene? Is the tragic flaw in Titus's character, which, in part, seems to include a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of justice. Titus, in his madness, seems to be committing here precisely that error that we've explored. The confusion between the realms of human and divine justice by attaching letters to arrows and firing them up to heaven, he seems to want to break through into the realm of the gods, as if it were possible somehow for him to do this and thereby change the very way that reality works. But, as we've already considered, we can't do that. It's impossible to do that. Human justice isn't about being able to decree what happens in reality. Instead, it's about taking action to create the best possible world fit for human beings in response to whatever it is that the gods or nature decide to throw at us. Unfortunately for Titus, he had an opportunity to do that, but at the beginning of the play, tragically, he passes that by. The play opens with the Emperor of Rome having recently died. Titus returns at this moment from a ten-year campaign fighting battles against the gods. He has come back victorious with the Queen of the Goths, Tamora, as his prisoner. Titus is the people's choice for the next emperor. The people want him to rule. But ignoring this, he declares himself unfit for power, and he pledges his support to the former emperor's son, Saturninus, as the next ruler of Rome. Titus's abdication of responsibility, his decision to ignore where the popular support lies, coupled with what seems to be a poor capacity for judging character 
in his choice of Saturninus for emperor. These set in motion the chain of violence and atrocities that follows when Saturninus soon afterwards takes the very rash and bizarre decision to marry Tamora, the queen of the Goths and the sworn enemy of Rome. From that point onwards, things very quickly become convoluted and dark and extremely messy. Life in the external world can become impossible when we cannot depend upon the powers that rule over us to exercise that power justly. But as individuals, we have a modicum of power also. And in our inner lives as well, the cultivation of justice is important. The judgments that we make have impact not only upon those around us, but also upon ourselves. Often we might feel a temptation to avoid the responsibility and the effort that the cultivation of justice demands of us. Or we might be persuaded by the notion that it's better not to judge, yet a little reflection is likely to persuade us that making judgments is perhaps inevitable. In that case, it's better to concentrate on trying to judge well. Balancing severity and softness and always being cautious around not overstepping the mark into the realm of the gods. For instance, by judging human beings rather than human actions. These are some principles, perhaps, that might serve us well 